there was a broad social consensus throughout most of the 20th century in the United States for why antitrust enforcement was essential. But at the Chicago School, a group of scholars funded by American plutocrats constructed a counterargument to say, oh, no, no, actually monopolies are not bad. They're good because, and drawing on a kind of perverted version of social Darwinism, they said monopolies are the winners in the capitalist competition, the struggle for survival. They win because they're the fittest companies. They're the best companies. And so instead of criticizing monopolies, you should actually admire them. You should praise them. And this was so influential that we, in the book we show, numerous judges actually cite articles written by the Chicago School of Economics making this case to throw out antitrust cases. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists, and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political, and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Naomi Oreskes. Naomi is the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science and Affiliated Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. She's a world-renowned Earth scientist, historian, and public speaker, and author of the best-selling books Merchant of Doubt and The Big Myth, How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Naomi joins me to give the most incredible whistle-stop overview of why the world is in crisis economically, politically, and scientifically, explaining why we have to talk about climate change as a political, economic, and ethical problem rather than a scientific problem. She explains the importance of political organization, tactics that British civilians used to protest the transatlantic slave industry, how networks of corporations, politicians, lobbyists, industries have collaborated to deny the severity of the climate crisis and delay climate action. She explains why a renewable world is so threatening to the powers that be, revealing an angle that could unite the left and the right when confronting this problem. She also explains the history of neoliberalism, how the global world order in which we live today was deliberately misinterpreted by American businessmen in order to unleash the markets that they could then benefit from. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. I'm so delighted to speak with you, Naomi. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. So thank, thank you very you. much for making the time to join Planet Critical. You're welcome. Happy to be here. My first question for you is, why is the world in crisis? Well, there's probably a lot of different answers to that question. And depending upon what a person works on and is most concerned about, they might frame it in many different ways. But I think, to me, the most powerful framing is the one that Pope Francis used in his first encyclical on climate change and inequality, where he connected what I see as the two biggest and related crises that we face, 
The first is climate change, which is the thing I work on specifically. Uh, scientists have been warning for decades that burning fossil fuels puts greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. These change the climate in adverse ways that are difficult to adapt to. And we are now seeing all of the predictions that scientists made back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s are all coming true. Worsened hurricanes, worsened wildfires, worsened droughts, um, affecting food supply, uh, damaging communities, killing people, damaging biodiversity. All of these things, all these predictions have come true. People are getting hurt. Property is being damaged. Uh, biodiversity is at stake. And it's costing huge amounts of money, according to the International Monetary Fund, over a trillion dollars every year now in external costs. So this is a crisis of massive proportion, which we are doing very little to fix. Uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is getting worse every single day, and the impacts of climate change are getting accordingly worse. And of course, there's a big social justice component to this problem, which is partly why the Pope became involved in the issue, because it connects directly to inequality. So we also live in a world of tremendous global inequality, both between countries and within wealthy nations. Inequality has always been with us, but it's become much, much worse in the last 40 years, largely due to neoliberal policies that have promoted the concentration of wealth in the hands of very small numbers of people, made it much harder to redistribute wealth in fair ways through minimum wage laws or taxation structures. And so the rich have got colossally richer in the last 40 years, and the rich are colossally consumptive. So there's a direct connection between climate change and consumption and the ways in which billionaires who fly on private jets or have super yachts or just use, use lots of energy, um, and not just billionaires, the wealthy across the globe, uh, the wealthy in India, the wealthy in China, as well as the wealthy in Europe and North America, we use a disproportionate amount of the world's resources, leaving precious little for the rest. And so it's directly related to inequality. It's re directly related to injustice. And then there's the particular added as if that were not enough. Many of the worst impacts of climate change will most adversely affect the poor because they have uh, fewer resources with which to protect themselves against things like um, heat waves or intensified storms. And we're seeing that today, even as we speak, as a Category 9 hurricane is bearing down on Acapulco and parts of Mexico. Thank you for that. That was a phenomenal summary <laughs> of, of our situation today. Um, I suppose that the, the, where I want to dive in is, you know, you um, published this uh, great book on on climate denial and how the fossil fuel industry sort of created this PR, came, uh, PR campaign, essentially, um, to obfuscate the data and offset responsibility onto consumers and essentially delay when we would have to take action. Um, your book, The Big Myth, was also about essentially the, you know, the campaign to make neoliberalism the uh, mot de jour um, and how the elites kind of got together to, to figure out how to sell it to the public through camera hitting and also through policies and all these kinds of things. I suppose my question then is, <laughs> when power seems to have access to so much of the story and the narrative, what is it that we can do? Because we're seeing this now. As you said, scientists have been screaming about this for decades. Activists are screaming about this on the streets every day. Those bloody politicians, they go to COP conferences and they have those conversations, but nothing really seems to be changing. What can we do about it? Well, it's a very difficult question. In many ways, this is a David and Goliath story. I'm influenced here in the work of Marshall Gantz. He has a wonderful book called Why David Sometimes Wins. Wins, And it's a very, it is very difficult and it's very demoralizing because 
the powers that be are powerful. They're effective. They have a lot of money. They put millions or hundreds of millions of dollars into their campaigns, their propaganda campaigns, their media campaigns, advertising, public relations. And they've been doing this for a long time. So it's no surprise that many of us have been confused on the issue because they've been trying to confuse us. And it's no surprise that they have held governments hostage because whenever governments move to do something meaningful in the climate space, they threaten. You know, they threaten to, well, whatever. They lobby, they campaign, they threaten to withhold funds, uh, they threaten to move offshore, whatever it is that they do. So it is very difficult. And one doesn't want to be Pollyannish about it and make it sound as if, you know, just buy an electric car and it'll all be fine hmm. because it's much deeper than that. But this is why we need to talk about the larger political context of climate change, not to talk about climate change as a scientific question, because that was resolved already 30 years ago, but to talk about it as a political, economic, social, and ethical question. And that shifts us into the domain of thinking about political power and how political power can shift. So I'm a scientist by training and a historian of science, but it seems to me very clear that all the available evidence shows us that more science will not solve this problem. We've tried that and it hasn't worked, but more political organization might. And we certainly have seen some gains, um, gains on the local level, gains on the national level. And if we look at history, if we look at the big changes of history, if we look at the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom or the emancipation of slave, enslaved people in the United States, these things didn't come about because scientists proved that black people were equal to white people. Mm -hmm. They came about because ordinary people mobilized and ordinary people made the ethical argument that, that this was wrong um, and made the argument that it was really intolerable and that ordinary people should have to say no to this. And one of the great stories I love about the abolition of slavery involves what happened in the United Kingdom around the time that ordinary people mobilized against the slave trade by boycotting sugar. So this is a little known piece of history, at least little known in the United States. But, um, you know, in the mid to, let's call early, late uh, 18th century, 1750s to 1780s, 1790s, something like that, uh, slave trade was widespread. There was not a lot of public opposition to it in the United Kingdom. Uh, but that changed pretty quickly at the very end of the 18th and into the early 19th century. And it changed for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons, one of the tools that was used was a consumer boycott of sugar, which called people's attention to the way in which ordinary life, how they, even if they weren't slave owners, even if they weren't slave traders, they were still participating in the slave trade and they were benefiting from it, even though, you know, maybe they didn't, they weren't bad people, but they were benefiting from cheap sugar that had been raised and cut by enslaved people in the Caribbean. And so... The boycott of sugar raised public awareness about this issue and shifted the public discourse away from slavery as something that was normal and accepted to something that was now no longer acceptable. And that change happened fairly quickly within, let's say, about 30 years. So uh, it's a little depressing in the case in, of climate change because we know there's an urgency to this issue. We know we can't afford to wait another 30 years, but we already have a movement underway. So one of the questions is how do we accelerate that movement? And that's a, that's a really tough question, which probably you have to put to people who are experts on social movements, uh, which I am not. <laughs> I think one of the questions that comes up from the public is that 
um, whilst the they see the benefit of these social movements, the problem is that they seem to be impacting like normal normal people's lives or your average everyday working person's lives. And that's a fantastic story about boycotting sugar. I love it. I suppose immediately I was thinking like, how did, God, how does somebody boycott fossil fuels in like a globalized <laughs> world where we're so dependent on it? Well, that's right. So fossil fuels, no historical analogy is ever exact. And fossil sure. fuels are more are more difficult because we can't just suddenly say, okay, I'm boycotting fossil fuels because our lives are so imbricated with it. And everything we do, us sitting here right now talking to each other over the internet is using energy mostly from fossil fuels. So I'd say the answer is a both end. There are things we can do in our individual lives. So I'm talking to you from my university whose energy policies I don't control, although I try to influence them. If we were at home, we would be using the electricity from the photovoltaic panels on my roof. So sometimes there are things you can do as an individual. In my home, the electricity now is almost entirely powered by solar power. That's something that many people can do, not everyone, but many. A tremendous amount of greenhouse gas emissions are associated with animal agriculture. This is something that the American agriculture industry hates it when I talk about or anyone talks about. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of disinformation rising in this sphere in the United States. But this is something that people have a lot of control over. We do have choices about what we eat. We don't have to eat meat, or we could eat small amounts of it on special occasions. We don't have to eat large amounts of meat. And that makes a difference in the world, not just to greenhouse gases, but also to soil and water conservation, to the health of uh, agricultural workers. So those are things we can do on an individual level. But then there's the structural piece. I always like to say I can change my light bulbs, but I can't change my electricity grid. Mm -hmm. So for that, we have to be politically organized. And there, there's really a lot of work that needs to be done to push back against the power of the fossil fuel industry, which I was just reading yesterday about how in California, the uh, utilities, which you know live hand in glove with the fossil fuel industry, are pushing to raise the charges that are placed on people who have solar power in their homes to make it more difficult for the consumer to exercise choice. And that, of course, is something we have to push back against. And their consumers have a really good tool, particularly in the United States, because we're on the side of choice. Americans love choice. They love freedom. They think consumers should have the right to decide for themselves. And right now we're seeing the utilities decreasing the amount of consumer choice available to the American people. So that's a, that's a real winner from a rhetorical standpoint. And it's also a winner from a climate standpoint. You said earlier that um, corporations have held governments hostage as well um, on policies um, related to economics and energy. But something that is sort of, I think, not spoken about enough is the fact that um, it's states that produce 90% of the fossil fuels in the world, mm -hmm. state-owned corporations. So can you speak as well to this? Because this does seem to be this kind of um, uh, framing right now at the moment that it's fossil fuels versus potentially well-intentioned governments that don't quite know what to do. But in reality, that's not at all what's going on. Yeah, that's right. That's a great, uh, a great point. And we often do focus, particularly here in the United States, on the privately held company because the U.S., unlike many other countries, doesn't have a national oil industry or a national oil company. But you're absolutely right. Many companies around the world do France, Norway, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Mexico, and huge amounts of oil production come from these state-owned enterprises. And a huge amount of the known reserves of oil, gas, and coal are owned by state-owned enterprises. So these are extremely important. Um, we don't tend to talk about them a lot in the United States because there's a sense that there's not a lot we can do about Saudi Aramco. Um, but 
if you live in a country that has one of these, then clearly it's an extremely important issue. It should be much higher up politically. Um, and it's also, but there are things we can do. I mean, the reality is countries could place stiff carbon pricing systems that would include border adjustment tariffs, right? So let's say your country passes a carbon price, but oil is coming in from Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, or Mexico, wherever, Norway. You could have a what's known as a border adjustment, a tax on oil coming in from other countries that don't have carbon pricing systems. That's something that was almost impossible to talk about 20 years ago. I remember I was in Norway about, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. I gave an interview where I said, well, I may really get creamed for saying this, but you know, we could have carbon pricing with border adjustments. And um, well, it was a small Norwegian newspaper, so they published it and nobody got too mad. Mm -hmm. But now people are talking about that again, which I think is a good sign that the neoliberal intellectual lock that has made it very difficult to talk about things like tariffs and border adjustments and higher taxes, that that lock is breaking and people are beginning to see now that unless we have the conversation about those kinds of tools, you know, we're really in big trouble. And the other piece of it, of course, is subsidies. And this is almost universal, right? We know that virtually every country in the world that has an oil and gas industry subsidizes it, sometimes extremely extensively. And countries have done this because they've seen it as being in their interest to subsidize their own domestic oil and gas production. But of course, it's grossly not in the interest of anyone who's the subject of climate change, which is all nearly 8 billion people on this planet. So how do we fix that? Well, lots of people have spoken out against subsidies. Even the World Bank and the IMF agree that these uh, subsidies are bad, that they're perverse incentives. We know they're bad. How do we fix them? How do we change that? Um, I don't know. There you're going to need to invite a smart environmental economist on this program. <laughs> I will. Well, you know, there, there have been a few on this program and there's lots of ideas. And I think this is what is so frightening about um, where we are today and the availability of information that shows as well that we, we really do have everything ready to go. We've new economic ideas. We've got new geopolitical ideas. We've got new ideas on, you know, how to do democracy better even. Like every we are currently running the world with 20th century tools and mm -hmm. um, they are not working for us anymore. And yet uh, power won't let them go because it will demand a new world order. I mean, I don't know if, you, if I should, but I, could you speak to perhaps what a, what a renewable world would look like? Because for one thing, if a fossil, you can't run a military without fossil fuels, right? Like this militarized kind of world order. Well, That's I mean, an interesting question. <laughs> I mean, the fossil fuel industry certainly wants us to think that. They think we can't run a military without fossil fuels. They want us to think we couldn't have an aviation industry without fossil fuels. They want us to think we can't really live without fossil fuels. We know that's wrong. What the world looks like if we switch, though, is an interesting question. Um, and of course, that's tricky because if I say, yeah, it's a good thing, you'd have to get rid of the military, then all the people on the right wing will be angry. If I say it's a bad thing, then all the people on the left will be angry. So um, maybe setting aside the issue of militarism, but there is something related that we could talk about. I think one of the reasons why distributed, why renewable energy is so threatening to the powers that be is that renewable energy actually works really well as distributed energy. And if you particularly think about Africa, for example, where there isn't a big well-developed energy infrastructure, renewable energy could work really well as a form of distributed energy that could be done on the local level, individual villages with solar panels and generators uh, or battery systems, or you know countries, regionals that could have wind power and solar with a local grid 
Um, there's a lot of interesting work that's been done on micro and mesoscale grids. So renewable energy in that sense really can serve democracy. It can enable us to have power systems closer to home that we're more likely to have uh, democratic governance over. And that's a good thing. But it's definitely something that some governments don't want because they, I think, are afraid that they would lose centralized power. And so this is a place where, in my opinion, liberals and conservatives could come together because historically conservatives have not liked centralized national power. Historically, conservatives have tended to argue for distributed political power and distributed energy power can actually work hand in hand with distributed political power. So that's actually a place where one could imagine um, I don't want to say utopian, but, you know, a much improved system where the people of the world have the energy they need and actually have democratic governance over it, which is not what we have in most of the world today. Mm, that's so interesting. And I, <laughs> I love that you're trying to find as well these things that, that, speak, that speak to both sides, because unfortunately it has become a polarized issue, perhaps deliberately, probably deliberately, which has really stalled yes. the conversation. The fact that it's still a debate rather than a conversation. Right. Well, as I said, the science isn't debated. But it is contested, right? And as you just said, we know that it is deliberate. We know, and this is what Eric Conway and I wrote about emergence of doubt, that certain people didn't want us to understand the reality of climate change. The fossil fuel industry didn't want us to understand it because they're incredibly profitable. Um, I just read something about ExxonMobil's quarterly profits. I think it was, I want to say 400 million, something like that. I might have that wrong, but hundreds of millions of dollars just in a single quarter in profits. So obviously, they don't want to lose that. They've got a good thing going, and they'd like it to keep going. But as we showed in our work, it's not just about the profits of the fossil fuel industry. It's also about the political ideology that supports capitalism. And both in the new book, The Big Myth, and in Merchants of Doubt, we talk about how climate change now is very closely linked to market fundamentalist ideology and to claims about the way capitalism is linked to political freedom. We think those claims are wrong. We think history shows they're wrong. But because many conservatives have bought into this idea that if you compromise capitalism, you'll lose political and social freedom, they've been reluctant to admit the reality of market failure. They've been re reluctant to admit places where capitalism isn't working well for fear that the only alternative is dictatorial communism. And so one of the arguments of our new book, and consistent with what you just said about having a conversation, is we need to open up a place to have a conversation about what the alternatives are. Because the market fundamentalists and the neoliberals of the mid-20th century created a false dichotomy, that the only options we had were unregulated capitalism or very, very minimally regulated capitalism versus Soviet-style centralized planning and political totalitarianism. And the argument that people like Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig von Mises and Milton Friedman made was that if you compromise economic freedom, even if it's in the form of, let's say, a carbon pricing system or an emissions trading system or regulating tobacco, you are on a slippery slope to totalitarianism. Now, we know that's not true. We have lots and lots of evidence to show that's not true. But that argument was promoted very aggressively um, by a variety of people who we write about in the new book, so that many, many conservatives, particularly in the United States, but to some extent in Europe also, have come to believe this, have come to think it's true. And so they make the argument that they're actually defending freedom when they defend capitalism against what they call encroachment. Now, we think that's not true. We think the word encroachment makes no sense. We think history shows governments have always been involved in markets since the beginning of time. You can find 
discussions of the rules for the marketplace in the Bible. Markets predate capitalism. So you can have markets without capitalism. You can have different kinds of markets. You can have markets that run in different kinds of ways. But that whole conversation has been squashed by this political model that has dominated so much of the conversation really since the end of World War II. So we're talking about, you know, the better part of 80 years, a long chunk of history that basically framed the choices as dictatorial communism, unregulated capitalism, when in reality, there's a world of opportunities in between that we haven't really explored. But isn't it also that um, the the Montpellier Society, of which you know Hayek was a part of, these these neoliberal economists, who, from what I understand, were very unpopular for the vast part of their careers. Right. Um, right. It was really Thatcher and Reagan that helped them out. Um, but they also believed in regulating the market and in regulated capitalism. Right. Well, of course, it depends what you mean by they. So right. there's a lot of good work that's been done by this. People like Angus Bergen, Quinn Slobodian. Uh, Phil Murawski and Data Pluve have shown that if you look at what the discussions were taking place at the end of World War II about the future of markets, the future of governance in Europe and North America, there's a very wide-ranging conversation taking place and and a lot of a wide range of opinion about what neoliberalism was or should have been. The argument that we make in the big myth and the story that we tell is about how a particular interpretation came to dominate in the United States and why. And what we show in the book is that a group of American business leaders, really plutocrats, consciously worked to promote an extreme market fundamentalist vision, a vision that was even more extreme than what von Hayek himself said. And one of the ways they did that was by taking the road to serfdom, von Hayek's most famous book, 1944, which lays out his argument with a lot of caveats. So if you read The Road to Serfdom, it's a pretty sophisticated book. It makes a very strong argument for what we could call weakly or modestly regulated capitalism, but he actually makes a lot of allowance for exceptions. He says, of course, pollution, you have to regulate against pollution. Of course, you have to regulate banks. You know, of course, you have to regulate uh, dangerous working conditions, right? But in the American version, so these business leaders that we write about published a, a condensed, a Reader's Digest condensed version in which all of the subtlety, all of the nuance, and all of the allowances for the role of government have been removed, including there's a wonderful line where von Hayek says, well, of course you have to have government. And even to talk about interference doesn't make any sense because of course you interfere. You're always interfering because you have to run a society. This is removed from the Reader's Digest version. And so what we show in our book is how these business leaders systematically promoted what we, you know, you could call a dumbed down version of Hayek, and then also fostered a line of research at the University of Chicago in the Chicago School of Economics and the Law and Economics Program to promote this aggressive extremist version of neoliberalism, including a version that argued that you didn't have to enforce antitrust regulation, for example. There's, there was, um, let's say, 60, 70 years of experience to say that you did need to enforce antitrust regulation because without that, a lot of capitalism would devolve into monopolistic practices. And monopolies were bad for the consumer, they were bad for the worker, and they were bad for democracy because the robber barons corrupted democracy. This was well established in the late 19th century. There was a broad social consensus throughout most of the 20th century in the United States for why antitrust enforcement was essential. But at the Chicago School, a group of scholars funded by American plutocrats 
constructed a counter argument to say, oh, no, no, actually monopolies are not bad. They're good because, and drawing on a kind of perverted version of social Darwinism, they said monopolies are the winners in the capitalist competition, the struggle for survival. They win because they're the fittest companies. They're the best companies. And so instead of criticizing monopolies, you should actually admire them. You should praise them. And this was so influential that we, in the book we show, numerous judges actually cite articles written by the Chicago School of Economics making this case to throw out antitrust cases. And it's only now, in the last few years under the Biden administration, that we see the U.S. Department of Justice beginning to prosecute antitrust cases again in a vigorous way for the first time really since the Clinton administration. That is fascinating. I had no idea. It's so scary how these, like, uh, it's so scary how a very small group of people in the past had so much control over the narrative. It's so scary how a, either a miscommunication or a deliberate misinterpretation can then spin off a global world order that is killing the planet. I mean, and then it's really scary that nobody wants to listen to another way of doing things. Um, I suppose off the top of my head just here, I'm wondering about like, it seems when you were talking, I had a thought flash into my mind that was like, oh, well, I, I hope that it would actually be mar much more difficult now for such a thing to happen because of the internet and because we all have access to each other and more information. And then I thought back to um, Amy Westervelt's recent investigation mm -hmm. on the Atlas Network, which revealed this group of 150 think tanks and policy whatevers um, that are deliberately sowing um, uh, dissent around climate activists and trying to get them labeled as, well, essentially on a slippery slope on the way to terrorism um, because they are doing effective work. So it seems like even in a world of everybody being connected, the fact that there is so much information is now also perhaps working against us and the fact that it's difficult to parse now um, what is news, what is fake news. And then also, even if you have information, if you're not close to the levers of power, Right. I mean, I think there's always been disinformation. I just in class today taught Edward Bernays' book on propaganda published in 1928, so nearly 100 years ago. So on one level, none of this is new. But on another level, the problem is the speed at which this all takes place. It becomes incredibly difficult to counter disinformation because, you know, it's like the game of whack-a-mole, right? As soon as you answer one piece of disinformation, another piece has cropped up and then another and another and it's already halfway around the world before you've even had a chance to think about what an appropriate response should be. And this is why I think it is appropriate for people to be thinking about regulation of the internet. Um, Europe is ahead of the United States on this. In the US, First Amendment and free speech rights have been used to try to argue that we can't regulate the internet. I think that's ridiculous because we regulated television, we regulated radio, we've regulated electricity, we regulated railroads. I mean, there's a long history of regulating things that were understood to be, quote, natural monopolies, including communications and media networks like radio and television. So there's no in principle reason why we couldn't have some kind of system of regulation of the Internet as well. But we have to figure out what that is and we have to think hard about how to do it. What I think we have to not do is to think that somehow technology solves this problem. I was talking with a colleague the other day. There's a long pattern in history, in the history of technology, of people thinking that technology will solve social problems. And it almost never works that way, right? If anything, it makes them worse. And so uh, if you look at the history of radio, there's some amazing propaganda 
maybe, I don't know if it's propaganda, that's maybe the wrong word, amazing conversation that takes place in the early 20th century about how radio will lead to world peace. Why? Wow. Well, we'll all be able to communicate. And so all the misunderstandings that had led to warfare in the past, those will be obviated. <laughs> well, <laughs> look how that turned out. And this is before 1914. Mm. Um, television, the same. Television will bring us together. We'll be able to... Uh, you know, see the same television programs and someone in North Dakota can watch the same TV programs as someone in New York. And this will foster national unity. Well, there's actually some evidence that broadcast news may actually have helped to foster at least some kind of unified national conversation in a way that we don't have today. But did it solve the divides between the Democrats and the Republicans? Yeah, I don't think any historian of the media would make that claim. And then the Internet. Oh my, oh my God, just go back to the 1990s. You can find all sorts of claims about how the internet was going to expand democracy because we'd be able to vote from the privacy of our own home. I'd be able to sit here at my laptop computer and vote for the candidate of my choice. And we can have referenda on important issues like Brexit. Hmm. Well, look how that went, right? So, I mean, the idea that somehow you could solve this problem with technology is a very deeply rooted one. It's, of course, erroneous because it doesn't account for the fact that I mean, I mean, Brexit is a perfect example, right? When you have a complicated issue, simply giving people the right to vote about it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. I mean, I think historians will look back at David Cameron's decision to have a referendum on Brexit as one of the most colossal political misjudgments of the, you know, 20th, 21st century. Um, because it's not just about the technology. It's not just about the technology of the referendum. It's about the cultural context in which it takes place. And I mean, technology is value neutral, right? And it, it, depending on how you, well, yes. But, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. We don't, my people I live with don't think that. But, you know, I, I think it's funny. We were talking about this just in class today. And I use the example of a frying pan versus an atomic bomb. So in the case of a frying pan, I could use frying pan to fry eggs and make a nice breakfast for my family, or I could use it to kill my husband. Now, you could say that's a perfect example of how it's not intrinsic to the technology, it's what you do with the technology. But on the other hand, if I have an assault rifle, well, that assault rifle is designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that's to kill living things. So in that case, I would argue that the values embedded in the assault rifle are very different than the values embedded in the frying pan, but neither one is entirely value neutral, hmm. right? So sure, I suppose. I suppose a, a vague counter, which I think is what um, the those who hold nuclear arms around the world is that. Well, if I have it, I'm not going to use it. But if I have it, it'll stop somebody coming along and bullying me. Well, of course, and this is where you know technology sometimes breeds its own demand, right? I mean, before 1939, there was no demand for nuclear weapons, but once physicists realized that it was possible, then an argument became an argument developed that it was necessary. And then once the United States had the bomb, then of course the Soviet Union felt it had to have the bomb too. And then it goes from there, right? And so now everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, many countries have nuclear weapons. Many countries feel it's essential to the security. They all say they'll never use them. And to this day, the United States is the only country that's used a nuclear weapon in conflict. Um, but even there, I mean, the United, the United States has never apologized for using nuclear weapons against innocent civilians with no plausible military target in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. We present ourselves as the good guys. We were fighting for peace. 
you know, the Axis was bad, the Allies were good, therefore what we did was good. But the reality is that we killed 200,000 innocent civilians for no plausible military purpose. It's like that um, advice that lawyers will give you if you've done something, but you want to try and maybe get off with it. Don't apologize. Right, which is probably the worst advice that anybody could give in the rest of life. I mean, maybe in a court of law, there's a logic to that. But I mean, really, for most of life, the opposite should be the case. We all make mistakes. And I say this all the time. And this is how I feel about the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the fossil fuel industry accuses me of demonizing them, blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, I won't repeat the bad things they say about me. But I'm not demonizing anyone. We all make mistakes. Individuals make mistakes. Institutions make mistakes. Corporations make mistakes. No one could ever ask anyone, any institution, any corporation to be perfect. But what we can reasonably ask is that when you make a mistake and you realize, and particularly when you realize that that mistake is hurting people, that you stop doing it and you don't dig yourself in deeper. And that's what the fossil fuel industry is doing. They continue to refuse to admit that they've made any mistakes, that they've done anything wrong. And they continue on the same path of more fossil fuel exploration, more fossil fuel development, more fossil fuel infrastructure that is locking us into decades more fossil fuel use, which all of the available scientific evidence tells us we, we can't afford. And there's already been a lot of damage and there's going to be a lot more damage. And, you know, it's one thing to do something when you don't know that harm will ensue. I mean, all the ethicists would probably say, look, if you have no idea that this will do harm, then obviously in that moment, you can't really be held ethically accountable. But once you know it's that you're doing harm, if you then willfully continue to do it, and if you lie about it, that's a whole different kettle of fish. And that's where we are right now with the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, it's not a mistake anymore. No, it's not. It's as the saying goes, it's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> Naomi, I'm, I know you have to go, so um, wrap it up. we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for this. It's amazing. Um, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Oh, huh. Well, that's an interesting question. Who would I like to platform besides, obviously, my own books and my wonderful <laughs> co-author, Eric Conley? Well, I think there's a, there's a really interesting conversation emerging now about the future of capitalism. People like Tim, Tim Jackson, uh, the question of, you know, is sustainable capitalism an oxymoron? Can we, is there a way to think through how to reform our economic systems to be more equitable, more just, and not destroy the planet that we depend on to live? I think those conversations are really important. So all of the people who are involved in that conversation, I give them a lot of credit. I'm reading their work with my students, and I hope that other people will take this question seriously, because we really need to do something to fix our economic system. Otherwise, you know, we're all going to, we're all going to be suffering, and we're all going to end up a lot poorer. Naomi, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Me too. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.